SCP-7376, Kayin and Havel. Over the years, the SCP universe has developed its own mythology of characters, locations, and events. While nothing is concretely canon, this fluidity has allowed recurring concepts to be reused and reinterpreted by a variety of different authors in a variety of different ways. SCP-7376 takes two different well-known entities in the SCP universe, Cain and Abel, and combines them with two well-known religious groups of interest to create a new interpretation of their histories. While the lack of canonicity can get occasionally confusing, as this article has nothing to do with any other interpretation of these characters and groups, such as the cactus verse, it does allow for fresh takes to continue to pop up over the years. Let's take a look at Cain and Havel and their ancient rivalry. We're first given a memorandum from director Gene Carlisle Actis explaining that this anomaly is of the multiplex class, meaning that it's a group of two or more discrete anomalies that are inextricably linked to such a degree that describing them separately is either inadvisable or impossible. When trying to access the first section of the article, however, section A, we're informed that it's currently being edited, so on to section B. SCP-7376-B is a living Nalkin or Sarkic structure called a Kirok, generally used by Sarkites as a temple composed of living organic material including bone, chitin, skin, etc. It's located beneath the Upper Taz Nature Reserve in the Russian Federation, and it's estimated to be at least 10,000 square meters in size although its interior has not yet been fully mapped out. Despite the fact that these living temples must regularly be fed by caretakers to survive, no evidence of human activity in or around the area has been discovered. There is, however, non-human activity, in the form of dramatically enlarged, segmented worms that reside within the temple. These creatures, known to the Sarkites as Aculoth, or his sacred white worms, are typically one to two centimeters in length, with smooth yellow-white skin. The ones here, however, are two to three meters long, weighing 70 to 80 kilograms, and have rough, pale white skin. Like a normal colony of these worms, they collectively act as a symbiotic secondary immune system for the temple attacking any foreign entity that enters it, which can only be circumvented through the use of a pheromone. This pheromone is non-anomalous, but potent, and is produced naturally by the worms. Individuals doused in the substance are either ignored or followed by the worms. The worms were initially assumed to be the means by which the temple was fed, but testing has shown that they are not inclined to ever leave the temple only doing so if lured with the pheromone. The central chamber of the temple contains a three meter tall, upright coffin, composed entirely of anomalously durable bone that has partially merged with the chamber's northern wall. 
the seal of Clavigar Orok, one of the four individuals closest to Grand Karsist Ion, has been engraved into the lid, and it's understood to primarily symbolize the concepts of restriction and liberation. Beneath it, written in an obscure variant of Old Adatite, are the words throne slash tomb of the one who guards slash dreams slash drowns. Only one passageway connecting the temple to a redacted location has been found, with a symbol theorized to represent Ab Lashal, scarred into the flesh above its threshold, a rarely mentioned figure in Nalkin history that we'll find out more about later. We're then provided an exploration log of the temple, which has been entirely redacted. Shame. No Nalkin religious texts, historical records, or recorded folklore seem to mention the temple, either directly or indirectly, so it would seem that the Nalkin community as a whole is completely unaware of its existence. The 1986 establishment of the Upper Taz Nature Reserve points to the possibility that one or more individuals in the Soviet government were attempting to keep it hidden, but there's also no indication that GRU Division P were ever aware of the anomaly. The Foundation discovered it when a Foundation AI flagged several reports of an individual matching SCP-7376-A's description within the Upper Taz Nature Reserve. Scans performed during the ensuing search alerted Foundation agents to the presence of a massive heat source beneath the ground leading to the discovery of the entrance to the temple. Around a month and a half later, sensors stationed in the central chamber picked up a sudden surge of heat coming from the coffin. Further examination revealed that blood flow towards the coffin from the rest of the temple had sharply increased, and the anomaly was producing a faint organic pulsing sound. Two doctors and a technician were sent to set up additional monitoring equipment around the coffin, equipped with Class B biohazard suits. The technician begins to set up the equipment as the doctors calibrate it, noting that the temperature of the coffin has stabilized at 93 degrees Celsius, or just about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. One of the doctors wonders how it's not slow cooking the flesh around it, but they continue with their duties. Over the course of the next 10 minutes, there are several moments where vague movement is seen in the periphery of the camera's view, but none of the three seem to notice it. There doesn't seem to be any movement inside of the coffin, but at least half of their sensors can't seem to penetrate it. One of the doctors remarks on how unsettling this is, as all of the Sarkic temples they've found are either long deceased or getting fed regularly. This one isn't dead, but nobody's been feeding it, and they haven't even found any evidence that anyone has used this place since it was built, so how is it still alive? The other doctor offers the possibility that the temple is being sustained by some sort of anomalous effect, a ritual that enables a temple to be sustained indefinitely. But the other doctor says that if the Sarkites knew how to keep their temples alive without food, why wouldn't they have been doing that all along? 
And if it was too costly or difficult to bother with most of the time, why save it for a temple that they never use? She thinks that it's far more likely that it's feeding by some other means, some way that's kept downstairs, where they're not allowed to go. Regardless, they say that they need to figure out what's going on with this coffin quickly, at which point there's some more movement in the camera's periphery, and SCP-7376-C speaks up, saying that they may be of some assistance with that. With that, we're given the documentation on 7376-C, a human male of Middle Eastern descent that appears to be in his early 30s. A thaumaturgic sigil that emits trace amounts of Akiva radiation, particles directly associated with divine beings, has been etched into his forehead, and a significant portion of his body has been replaced with anomalous prostheses. These include replacements for his left hand and forearm, his right arm and shoulder, his left foot and leg, both of his eyes, his liver and a section of his small intestine, his heart, his cervical vertebra, and portions of his brain. These prosthetics place a certain amount of strain on his body, to the point that occasionally he needs additional mobility aids to move without pain or impairment although when offered superior prosthetics from Anderson Robotics, he declined. He stated an unwillingness to use any prosthetics that he could not personally disassemble or rebuild from scratch. He possesses an anomalous trait that causes all botanical and mycological life within 7.7 .7 meters of him to decay at a 220% faster rate. This effect exponentially increases if he physically touches the plant or fungus, and sustained contact will cause the subject to wither, rot, and disintegrate within a range of a few seconds to a few minutes, depending on its size. Sapient botanical and mycological entities within his line of sight, at a safe distance, universally report feelings of unease. In addition to this, he can remember anything he has ever seen or heard with perfect recall, and possesses extensive knowledge of many academic fields, to the extent that he has received honorary foundation doctorates in linguistics, history, engineering, and theology. Outside of texts connected to Abrahamic religions, the majority of documents relating to 7376C are historical records and religious texts belonging to the Church of the Broken God. He's widely attributed with creating an accumulation of scientific documents, blueprints, sketches, and philosophical musings collectively known as the Apparatus Liber. Though this collection makes no reference towards Meccane or its mythology, it is considered to be one of Mechanism's first holy texts due to its foundational role in mechanist philosophy and engineering. Subsequent mechanist texts refer to 7376-C with a variety of names, the most common of which are cane, cone, con, cable, and cubit, although when asked which of these names, if any, are true, he asserted that they were all equally correct. 
Many mechanist narratives that mention Cain also mention an antagonistic figure as his twin brother, referred to as Hadron, Hadron, Habel, Habel, or Havet. The word twin here has two meanings, one being gestated together inside the same womb, and two being manufactured at the same time. In a similar vein, mechanist documents refer to Cain both as a human and as a machine, sometimes interchangeably within a singular text. We're provided a text fragment recovered from a mechanist server that mentions both Cain and Havel. Mechain cast her voice, the holy signal, that which is neither particle nor wave, into the wide world. For a time, the signal went unheeded, for men had been made deaf to the sound of divinity by their own accursed flesh. Only the prophet Cable, who had read the blueprints of creation, could hear her words. And so Mechain brought Cable to the people, and spoke many great truths through him. But all was not well, for the prophet's brother, Habel was an agent of the flesh. Habel imposed upon the people the deception of flesh, to think the body a throne of the mind rather than its prison. And the people turned against Cable, casting him into the desert so that he would be tortured by sand creatures and slowly starve to death. Cable walked alone through the desert for three to the third power days and three to the third power nights. But not once did he falter, for he knew that Mekane's grace was with him. And lo, on the twenty-seventh night, from the northwest heavens a molten star fell, and in that star's heart was an angel of brass and steel. Shortly after Cain entered containment, Dr. Sophia Light, the director of the Tactical Theology Department, requested that she be given jurisdiction over all interviews with him, claiming a reason that would encourage him to speak candidly, although this reason is redacted due to requiring level 5 security clearance. The request was accepted, and were given the transcript for the first interview between the two. When Light enters, Cain is examining the joints in his left hand, but is startled when he looks up at her, appearing shocked to see her. Clearly the two know each other, although Cain says something that is redacted from the record, and Light says that she goes by Sophia now. She says that as much as she'd like to catch up, they need to move on, and asks him to state his name for the record. He replies that he's gone by many names over the years, but Cain will suffice for now. She asks him why he turned himself into the Foundation three days ago, but Cain isn't sure what she means. He told the researchers about who they'd find in the coffin and what they'd need to do about him, and then security arrived to take him away, so he didn't have any choice in the matter. Light doubts that as the Foundation has never found a trace of him before, and their historians were convinced that he had died somewhere around the fall of Babylon, 
so it seems pretty unlikely that he couldn't have left some instructions without getting caught. Kane chuckles and apologizes for the half-hearted deception. After a pause, he says that he has some security measures in the temple, something to alert him whenever someone intrudes and to provide a sort of shortcut to the interior. When he discovered that the temple was now under Foundation jurisdiction, he realized he had an opportunity to help right a wrong he once committed, if only partially. That was his first reason for coming here, but his second reason was more selfish. When he was a young man, before he first met Light, he committed a grave crime, an indelible sin for which there could be no atonement. For his misdeeds, his mother and father placed a curse on him, twice over. From his father, he was given a curse of withering, causing the land to decay wherever he treads, so that there is no hiding what he has done. From his mother, he was given a vagabond's curse of endless wandering, so that he would spend all his days with neither home nor true companionship. He wonders, though, if she would have chosen something else if she had known quite how many days that would be. Light is surprised that his parents did that to him, but he says that it was a kindness, as in those days, for a crime such as his, it was either an eternal curse or the death penalty. He has come to discover, however, that his mother's curse has a loophole of sorts, as he can only stop his wandering if he is forced to stop, if he is imprisoned. Light ponders this for a moment, and asks him why he would want to be contained by the Foundation, when he could go to the Broken Church or the Horizon Initiative, a group dedicated to anomalies connected to the Abrahamic religions. Kane says that the Horizon Initiative defines him by the worst thing he has ever done, so it's likely that he would just become another weapon in their endless crusade. The Broken Church are the opposite, as they know he is blessed by their god, and he would just become a clockwork saint locked in a metal shrine. Here at least he may be able to accomplish some good, if they allow him to. Light says that her superiors would likely be open to some kind of arrangement, but she asks what he means about being blessed by Mekane. He explains that when he was cursed, he tried to undo his crime, and in doing so, he only deepened his sin. He would spend the following years searching non-stop for a way to mend what he had broken, to rewind what he had unwound, but with each attempt, he found only greater failure. He was crushed under the weight of it all, and it almost killed him, but one night, as he wandered through the desert, he found God. He's not speaking figuratively though, he found God, or a very small piece of her. It was a kind of brass puzzle box, half buried in the sand. At the time, he didn't know that what he was holding was divine, he just knew that it held wonders inside. He spent months divining its secrets, developing entirely new modes of science and mathematics from what he discovered. When he had learned all that he could, he split the puzzle box in half 
and took God into his heart. With the aid of his apprentice, he replaced his mortal organs with holy brass, imbuing himself with youth eternal. Light asks who his apprentice was, and Cain says that he was the son of a poor stable hand who came to follow him in his wanderings for a time. It was his idea to reshape the other half of the puzzle box into an archive to stretch his memory alongside his extended lifespan. His name was Bumaro, and he was a prodigy in every sense of the word. Light redirects him back to her earlier question, on whether or not he's a prophet of the broken god. Cain sighs and says that he's not certain. He doesn't feel like a prophet, as he has received no holy visions, and no angels have come to him. He notes that the heart and the head hold great symbolic significance, and to replace all of one and part of the other is a dangerous thing. When Bumaro convinced him to implant his archive, he crafted a thaumaturgic sigil on his forehead that would keep him metaphysically stable. He later came to discover that this sigil, which he had thought was his own creation, is a fragment of Mekane's true name. Perhaps Mekane has been whispering in his ear all along. Light remarks that his sigil isn't the biblical mark of Cain, then, but rather the mark of Mekain. She asks him if his other prostheses are similarly divine in origin, but he says they're not, and when asked where they came from, his smile fades, and he just says that he's led a very interesting life. After a brief moment of silence, Light asks if she's let him talk around this for long enough, and Kane sighs, saying that she's right, it's time he told her about his brother. With that, we're finally given access to SCP-7376-A, a Keter-class anomaly with extensive containment procedures detailing how the anomaly is to be terminated within 67 seconds of his emergence from the coffin. 7376-A is a humanoid anomaly with the appearance of a 30-35 to 35 year old man of Middle Eastern descent. Roughly 75% of his skin has been tattooed with thaumaturgic symbols closely associated with long-range carnomancy. In the event that he dies, his body will fully disintegrate, and after a dormant phase lasting between three days and two months, he will grow a new body within the coffin over the course of 13 hours. At the conclusion of this process, he will exit the coffin covered in a thin layer of amniotic fluid and dressed in simplistic clothing made of his own skin. 7376-A is a Carnomancer, or in simple terms, a Meat Wizard, with abilities equivalent to that of a Carcist. He possesses extremely fine control over his body's cells, being able to manipulate skin, bone, muscle, etc., for a variety of offensive and defensive purposes. 
This, in combination with his innumerable years of combat experience and extreme hostility towards any form of imprisonment, has made continuous containment extremely challenging. He does, however, possess three critical weaknesses, the first being that his abilities are notably weakened in the first 67 seconds after emerging, and if he's still alive after this period, the likelihood of him breaching containment is almost certain. Second, he's either unwilling or unable to use carnomancy to manipulate the organic tissue of living things, which is a pretty big deal, as the ability to generate anomalous life has always been a force multiplier in conflicts involving the Nalka. Finally, he appears to require a certain degree of conscious thought to use the full extent of his abilities, and so the Foundation utilizes experimental mimetic weaponry, codenamed Cognito Burst, to disable or hamper his actions. Cognito Burst is designed to simultaneously transmit cognitohazardous information along six different vectors sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and telepathy. This is all combined with electric deterrent systems, omnidirectional flame units, high pressure industrial water cannons shooting hydrochloric acid, plasma projectors, and congelation cannons to slow down and kill him within 67 seconds of emergence. 7376-A's role in human history has been difficult to determine, as many of his theorized appearances are attributed under different names and subject to countless years of mythologizing. Reports of individuals matching his description have cropped up in nearly every known major war, in addition to over 20 large-scale natural disasters, and no discernible pattern has yet been found for a timeline of his activity. He seems to, at completely random intervals, go into seclusion for irregular lengths of time, after which he involves himself in events that invariably lead to massive loss of life. It's unknown if his presence has a causal relationship with these cases of mass death, or if he actively seeks them out. Only one historical period has been verified to have involved him, the Davite Slave Rebellion and the subsequent rise of the Kalmaktama Empire, a Nalkin Empire. Nalkin religious texts and records almost universally refer to him as Volutar Havel, a warrior prince who came to aid the Nalka in a time of great need. Most Nalka cultural groups consider him to be the most notable Volutar in Nalkan history, believing him to be the only Volutar to directly advise Grand Karsist Ion himself. That being said, his role within Nalka culture is not analogous to that of a Clavigar, as he appears to be more of a historical figure than a spiritual one. Nalka cultural groups generally believe that he died shortly before or after Grand Karsist Ion's disappearance. In the latter case, the prevailing belief is that he was killed in Kalmaktama's war with the Mechanite Empire, while in the former case, it's believed that he sacrificed his life to slay Ab Lashal a leviathan spawned by one of Yaldabaoth's archons. Ab Lashal roughly translates to 
a sky-shaped dream or a flesh-shaped ocean, and few mentions of this entity have been found outside of accounts of this battle, so it's possible it never existed at all. In the mid to late 1890s, the American Secure Containment Initiative began the Omega-7 Initiative, also known as Project Pandora, a research program with the goal of weaponizing anomalies for the US military. Very little now is known about Omega-7, as most of its documents and personnel were lost when its base of operations went dark in 1899. All remaining Omega-7 documentation has been extensively redacted, including information on the date it was founded, the anomalies involved in it, the location of its facility, the research produced there, its budget, and its staff. One fact has been determined with near certainty, however, and that's the fact that one week before Omega-7 went dark, word was received that Havel had been brought into containment and was being transported to the Omega-7 facility. Only one copy of its documentation at the time has been recovered, most of it completely redacted. What is there seems to imply that Omega-7 attempted to alter Havel's subconsciousness, which went awry, leading to him developing an immunity to fatal cognitohazards and somehow causing a devastating earthquake near their secondary facility in Russia. Back to the interview between Kane and Light, in which Kane says that he must first provide some context before he speaks of his brother. Kane was not the first man to be born, though his people were perhaps among the first. Their kingdom was not a vast domain, but it held claim to a great nexus of commerce and a fierce enough army to keep the Deva away from their borders. His mother was Lilith, the queen, an incredible sorceress that had been taught by the serpent itself. Such was the strength of her magic that each word she spoke resonated with the mutterings of thunder. His father was Adam, an escaped slave of the Davite High Gardens. Despite the circumstances of how he learned the craft, he never lost his love of gardening, and Cain remembers him as being a very gentle man. They were an odd couple, but had found their own sort of equilibrium, and raised Cain in the capital city, Paradisum. It was called the city beneath two trees, as when it was first founded, his parents planted a pair of seeds at its heart one the seed of an ash tree from the Wanderer's Library, and the other a seed from the High Gardens that had been cleansed of all Davite corruption. He was the eldest of five children, and while he got along fine with his younger siblings, Set, Awan, and Azura, he was always closest to the second-born, Havel. Cain says that Havel was the best of them, a skilled warrior, a cunning strategist, a brilliant artist, and he would even come to inherit a fragment of their mother's voice. Though he lacked the talent for magecraft, he learned to enchant his words so that all living things could understand his speech. Above all else, though, he was endlessly 
genuinely kind, the kindest person he has ever known. Despite this, or rather because of it, Cain resented Havel, as he was everything that Cain could not be, and had never tried to be out of base fear and apathy. He cared for Havel, but that resentment was always smoldering in the back of his mind. As they grew, it became clear that Havel was likely to inherit his mother's throne, despite Cain being the firstborn. Knowing that it was because Havel truly deserved it, and had done far more to earn such a station, fanned the embers of his resentment into a flame of animosity. Then one day, his family received a message from none other than Grand Carcist Ion, appealing for their assistance in his rebellion against the enslaving Davites. It was a message that went unanswered, as Lilith knew that they had only kept the Deva away by being too much of a hassle to overthrow. To affiliate themselves with the Grand Carcist would be nothing less than a declaration of war, one they would be unlikely to survive. Cain's father was of the same mind, and though his heart bled for his kinsmen, his duty came to his own people first. That night, Havel came to Cain in secret, and even though he had never lived the life of a Davite slave, he had always felt connected to them through their father. They were family to him, even if only as distant relations, and he could not stand the thought of their endless suffering. Now that he had heard their plea for help, he could no longer continue to do nothing, but he did not know what to do. When he asked Cain for his advice, Cain admits that he is ashamed to say that he saw only opportunity, telling Havel that if he left in secret rather than as a prince, who knows what he could accomplish? And if he is to die, killed by some nameless soldier on a distant battlefield, leaving behind an empty throne for his older, more deserving brother, then all the better. Havel believed him, and years passed, until eventually the day came when Cain heard word that Havel had returned. Cain was filled with a sickening mixture of joy and disappointment and shame, but rushed from the palace to greet him. They reunited just as Havel crossed the city's far borders, meeting in a field on the outskirts. Havel told him that he had succeeded in his quest, he had helped free the victims of the cruel Deva, and more than that he had met the Grand Carcist, and in doing so had come to forge a bond that Cain did not understand. He had been named a Volutar, and Cain knew then with total certainty that in trying to win back his throne, he had only crushed what little chance he had. In becoming a true hero of the people, bonding with the leader of a nation that was on the verge of becoming the most powerful in the known world, the throne was as good as his. In Cain's fear, and hatred, and rage, and all-consuming entitlement, he told Havel that he was overjoyed to see him returned safe, that he was proud of him, and that they would return to the palace together. When Havel turned to walk alongside him, Cain picked up a heavy stone from the field. 
What happened next is a familiar story, but Kane says that that's when the trouble truly began. His crime was quickly discovered, and he was stripped of his family name, cursed twice over, and banished. He wasn't particularly remorseful back then, however, and says that he was not an entirely pleasant person in his youth. He regretted what he had done, but he also regretted getting caught and losing his station and his family, and the feeling of proper guilt over what he had done was not at the front of his mind. When Havel died, he saw it less as a wrongdoing demanding penance and more of a problem needing a solution. He wanted to bring Havel back to life, and it was not as difficult as he imagined it would be, with the hardest part being the grave robbing. After he had obtained Havel's corpse, he found a necrochemist to stop the decomposition and undo what little rot it had already endured. Then he bought the services of a spirit caller to pull Havel's soul from the ether and bind it to his body. Normally such an act should only be possible in the first few moments after death, but the souls of those who died violently tend to linger for a time, especially for those killed by their loved ones. All that remained then was to give him a spark of life, but he was greedy and just resurrecting him wasn't enough, so he began his journey to Aditum, to Grand Carcist Ion. We're interrupted briefly with the SCP document for 7376-Omega, a Tiamat-class anomaly, a dangerous anomaly that can't be contained without breaking the veil. According to the containment procedures, it's currently in a dormant state, and to keep it that way, the processes associated with Havel's awakening events shouldn't be interfered with. If it does become active, it's to be neutralized by detonating the thaumonuclear warheads planted along its northern ridge, being nuclear warheads enhanced with magic. Should this fail to neutralize it, all available Foundation resources are to be diverted towards the immediate evacuation of Earth's population. 7376 Omega is an anomalous gigafauna of undetermined size located directly beneath the Sarkic Temple in Russia. The Foundation has adopted a strict policy of non-interaction with the anomaly, which has prevented detailed research from taking place. What they do know is that it's currently in a state of deep dormancy, with its resting heartbeat being two beats per day. Its emergence would, at minimum, lead to the decimation of Eurasia and the irrevocable disruption of Earth's magnetosphere, and that it and Havel possess identical DNA. Back to the interview. Kane says that he didn't just want to merely bring his brother back to life, but he wanted to resurrect him in such a way that would save him from ever being killed again. Like a child who hides the evidence of their wrongdoing beneath their bed, he thought that undoing his mistake would unmake everything that followed it. He traveled to the Grand Carcist, and when he showed him Havel's body, he asked him to impart a fragment of what he had given his Carcis and Clavigar, 
the carnomantic gift that can mend any wound and press the hands of age backwards. Ion didn't even hesitate in saying yes, and Cain thinks that Havel, in his many years away, had become very important to the Grand Carcist. Or perhaps Ion saw the wisdom in giving the future king of this kingdom immortality, ensuring that an alliance between nations would be just as enduring. Unfortunately, something went wrong, and to this day, Cain does not know why. Perhaps a Davite curse or some other malignant magic had interfered with the spell, or perhaps Ion made a mistake somehow, pouring too much of himself into the casting, or perhaps death had changed Havel on a fundamental level to such a degree that magic that should have matched his soul perfectly now met it as sodium metal meets a dirty puddle. Whatever the reason, in the instant that his heart started beating, his body began to grow and grow, with the carnomancy placed inside him boiling out of control like a cancer. By the time the Grand Carcist had realized what was happening, it was too late, as there was no taking away a gift that he had already given. Havel became a landscape of skin and sinew, and could only thrash about in cataclysmic fits. The Grand Carcist would later tell Cain that, while Havel's body had dramatically increased in size, his consciousness had not changed in shape. His body was too large for his thoughts, and he was lost in his own depths. It was then when Ion made the Temple of Ab-Lashal, burying Havel in the earth and placing a living tomb atop him, which wrapped thick roots around his brainstem to rock him into an endless dream, all in the hope that one day he would find his way back to the surface. Against all odds, he did, many, many years later, and that's what he is now, a waking dreamer. The Havel that people know is a puppet, a human-shaped vessel for his human-shaped consciousness, an avatar he experiences the world through. Whenever he dies, his true body simply grows a new one once his mind resurfaces. Light asks Cain if Havel ever forgave him, but he says that he did not. Dying being alone in that ocean of a body for centuries, losing their family and the Grand Carcist, all of it changed him. Cain does not deserve his forgiveness, of course, but he is no longer the kind man that Cain knew. He doesn't know what he is now, something cruel and callous, a danger to everyone around him in dire need of containment. He asks Light if they'll contain him, and Light responds that they always do. A few years later, in May of 2022, Dr. Daniel, director of ETRA, the Emergent Threat Tactical Response Authority, made a proposal to the O5 Council. In it, he states that Havel, or Abel, as they're calling him now, has been getting closer and closer to a breach with each termination cycle they put him through. 
as he clearly has continuity of memory between incarnations, they've essentially spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to train Abel on how to fight them. So long as he possesses the ability to grow a new body after death, containment simply isn't feasible, and interfering with his resurrection mechanism would only open up a much larger can of worms. He proposes instead that they recruit Abel for use in the containment of other high-risk anomalies. If they can't force him to remain within containment, they'll need to find a way to get him to stay willingly. The O5 Council take a vote, which comes down to a pretty narrow margin of approval, and Cain is requested to perform the initial negotiations with Abel due to their familial relationship. Cain displayed a strong hesitance, but agreed after being informed that Abel would likely assault any individual it did not recognize while inside of the temple. The area was emptied of all termination apparatus, with the only objects in the chamber being the coffin, a set of chairs, and a small table on which a stack of papers has been set. Kane sits at the table as a faint organic pulsing sound is audible until Abel stumbles out of the coffin. His skin has been hardened by carnomancy, giving it a bright red hue. His limbs are edged with razor-sharp bone, with amniotic fluid steaming off of it. He looks around wildly, evidently ready for a fight, and disoriented by the lack of immediate assault. Cain greets him, startling Abel, who storms towards him. Cain says that it's been a long time, but Abel responds that it hasn't been nearly long enough. Cain tells him that he's here to speak on behalf of the Foundation, his captors, because they're terrified of him. Abel replies that he has every right to fight back, as they're keeping him here against his will. He then says that this was all Cain's doing, as this sort of meddling has his stench all over it, and he must have spun his tale of woe so that they could imprison him so readily. Abel then looks up at a camera, and switches from speaking in an unknown language to speaking in Russian, wondering if Cain told them that he had Abel's corpse cursed so that any harm he would inflict on Cain would instead land upon himself or if he told them all about the things his scrapyard god's worshippers have done in his name. Cain replies that he has nothing to hide, causing Abel to laugh bitterly, and when Cain tells him to just listen to him for a moment, Abel declines and begins walking towards the exit. MTF Alpha 76 begins preparing for a breach scenario, but Cain tells Abel that the Grand Carcist would be ashamed to see what he is now, causing Abel to stop. In a sudden burst of movement, he turns, hurls himself towards Cain, and slams his head through the table. Thin cracks form along the left side of Abel's head, and Cain clutches his head in apparent pain, although he gestures to the MTF that he does not wish for an extraction. Abel then lifts Cain into the air, his bladed fingers carving into his chest, and Cain winces in pain, although wounds appear on Abel's chest rather than his own. 
Abel curses at his brother, calling him a waste of flesh, saying that he has no right to speak of the Grand Carcist at all. He knew him, and cared for him, just as Ion cared for him, while Cain took that all away from him. Cain says that he's right, he didn't know him, but he knows that he loved his people, the people of Aditum, the Nalka. He asks Abel what he has done for the Nalka in all these years, through all their abuse and manipulation. He stands by and fights his wars, doing nothing for his people, closing his eyes to their suffering, because he knows that to look upon them is to look upon what Cain took from him. Abel's fingers tighten further, causing Cain to cry out in pain, but he continues, telling Abel that he can no longer afford to look away. The world is changing faster than ever, and he asks Abel if he's absolutely certain that his people are prepared for the days to come. The Foundation's influence is immense, and if he fights under their banner, they will help the Nalka and find ways of preserving their culture. He knows that he has no right to call him brother anymore, but Abel does still have a family, and he needs to help them. Abel abruptly drops Cain to the floor, as his wounds begin to seal together, and the edges of bone begin to retract into his skin. He says that he will speak with this foundation, but he needs evidence that they're fulfilling their promises. Additionally, if they ever use Cain as their representative again, the deal is off, as he never wants to see him again. With that, Abel is handed over to the Emergent Threat Tactical Response Authority team, in what is certain to be a massive success. Combining ancient mythological characters and entities with the modern anomalous age of the SCP Foundation has always been a hit-or-miss route to take amongst readers. Some enjoy the way these concepts become reinterpreted and integrated with the Foundation's operations, playing around with preconceived notions and histories, and often subverting them. Others dislike anything that ties back into real-world mythologies, preferring their horrors to be wholly original in nature and alien to our understanding. Regardless, entities like Cain and Abel have been a part of the SCP universe for many years now, and will likely continue to be developed and reinterpreted. Abel working with the Foundation in a militaristic capacity is something we've seen before, but as this canon is likely to continue to expand, we'll probably see some differences with how the Foundation handles him. We've also seen plenty of different canons showing the conflict between the Sarkites and the Church of the Broken God, with the Foundation in the middle, but as it's a canon I enjoy to read about, I can't complain about more versions of it. We'll have to see what becomes of Cain and Havel, and whether or not the real Havel ever breaks loose.